0: Hello brothers, sisters and friends. Welcome to You Are the Current Resident podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan and sitting next or not sitting next to me, we're actually on Zoom today. I almost forgot. <laughs> is our national president Brian Renfro. Hey Brian, how are you?
1: Hey, Eddie, I'm doing great. Just got back from uh, one of the more exciting things we get to do every couple of years. That's the National Rap Session, which I know we'll talk about here in just a minute. So it's fun to be with you once again. And we're recording this on Thanksgiving
0: week. So looking forward to the holiday. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a good time. So let's get into the rap session. We had it down in New Orleans. I think it went terrific. Uh, You want to talk about it a little bit?
1: Sure, yeah, I I would agree with you. Um but just to start, I, I want to express my appreciation and on behalf of the executive council and all the staff here at headquarters. Our appreciation to our branch and state leaders that came down to New Orleans and participated in the wrap session and they uh <laughs> they got a lot of information and it was a really busy few days. So Uh, First want to be sure, recognize and appreciate them because, you know, ultimately that's the purpose of it. You know, our constitution requires it and it's something that we love to take advantage of that opportunity to share so they can go back and in their branches or state associations uh, share the information with their members. But no, it it went really, really well. New Orleans is anybody that's listening that's been there, I think will agree is a great place. I, I will admit I'm kind of biased because it's almost home for me. Uh, I'm from right up the road from New Orleans in uh, South Mississippi, but no, it, it was phenomenal. So we uh, started off on Friday and with registration and a little welcome reception, and then spent all day Saturday with workshops that each of the resident officers participated in. And a lot of our headquarters staff shared all kinds of information about a lot of different things that are going on, you know, with our union, with our jobs and you know, the, the folks that were there that attended our leadership took full advantage of that you know each of those classes was full so that was a great opportunity to share a lot of information and then on Sunday we had the rap session itself starting early in the morning and got done a little before noon. And, you know, I had the chance to share, you know, dig into some, several different topics, collective bargaining. What we're doing as we've talked about a lot on the podcast with trying to fight back against the, the crime and the, the violence against our members that we're seeing, unfortunately, continue to increase around the country. We talked about what we're doing in a big picture to continue our efforts to improve representation across the board. We talked a lot about a lot of the current legislative and political issues and then got into some exciting new stuff that we're excited about rolling out as we move into 2024 and beyond. And then as uh, the name would indicate, we technically, constitutionally, they call this a national conference, but we've kind of historically called it a wrap session because we set aside a, a significant amount of time as we did yesterday morning to hear from the leadership that's in attendance. They, you know, asked me a lot of different questions and brought up a number of different issues and shared experiences. And that's always valuable, certainly for everyone that's in attendance. But speaking from a personal perspective, it's also valuable to me to hear the feedback. From from the leadership of our branches and state associations. So, Went really, really well. I want to compliment our headquarters staff and all our resident officers here that did a fantastic job preparing for every aspect of the event. When you attend things like this, which, you know, obviously I and Ed, you have, and, and a lot of our listeners have in the past, be it a convention or rap session, it's usually fairly straightforward and seamless. You know, everything's all ready to go when we get there and we go to the workshops and the sessions, and things tend to run pretty smoothly, but there's a lot of work that has to be done in preparation to ensure that we create the best experience we can for all our people that attend and All those folks that I mentioned did a fantastic job of that. I really couldn't have gone any better. And, you know, we were able to handle a lot of the issues and discuss things that are really, really important to our members right now. And at the same time, embrace, you know, a lot of kind of local culture there in New Orleans. With our branch 124, those guys did a great job of hosting us and a branch that they're from my region. I, I know them well. And just like everything else in New Orleans, they have a great spirit about them. And I think that kind of permeated through the entire. Entire event, So, you know, we covered, as I said, a lot of different information. And for those listening that maybe were not attendees at the RAP session and you maybe haven't had a branch meeting since the RAP session took place. One, I hope that if your leadership attended that you will hear from them a lot of the information that we provided and the things that we discussed. But we also have some plans here in the near future in the next issue of the postal record and the bulletin and several of our other publications. It will have a lot of coverage of what took place there. So You know, even if uh, you're a listener and and you did not attend or maybe you haven't heard directly from your leadership that did attend as of yet, you will see some coverage in the magazine and where we'll get into a lot of detail about you know a number of the things that we talked about because it's important. It's important for all of our members to be on the same page and and have a, an understanding of the you know challenges we face and the way we're fighting those things and working to improve a number of different areas in which we are responsible for providing representation that ultimately will benefit our members.
0: That's a great point. You know, if you are a member and you haven't been to a union meeting in a while, get to your next union meeting because it's going to be about contract negotiations and things that you can only hear letter carrier to letter carrier, member to member. Next week, we're going to actually have a little mini rap session here on the podcast. We're going to kind of go over what went on at the rap session. I think that'll be a pretty good time. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that. I'll give you credit. That was your idea, Um, but I'm excited about it. So we'll cover, as I mentioned, you know, obviously we talked about a lot of stuff to do with collective bargaining and crime and, you know, legislative, political stuff and a number of different issues. But I'm particularly excited to dig in next week into some of the new things that we're in the process of working on that are all designed to benefit our members. So That episode next week will be a lot of fun for us to do. And hopefully for the listeners, it'll be an opportunity for them to get an experience that in some ways is similar to those that attended the rap session back in New Orleans. But Ed, you make a very good point. You know, if you're out there as a member and you haven't been to your local union meeting in a while, this one, the the next one will definitely be a good one to attend because I can tell you we got very in-depth on a number of different topics and I'm sure your leadership will be eager to share that with the members of your branch. So, it's always a good idea to attend your meetings. That's the way the best way to keep up with what's happening with our jobs and representation and that kind of stuff, but coming off of an event like this, there should be an even greater amount of information and discussion about the stuff that's that's important to us than maybe there normally would be. So, get out to your meetings.
0: I just want to piggyback on two things you said earlier. One, the leadership that was in attendance I would call them professional you know i uh, was in a presentation later in the day on saturday and the room was packed and quiet people were taking notes just really good to see just the way we do it, you know we're out on the route being professional and me in the union halls being professional it was the same thing here in new orleans and the uh, second point is the cuisine in new orleans is terrific and I was thinking about renting a room over Mother's Restaurant and just living there for the rest of
1: my life. <laughs> yeah, it's it. You're right. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I have, over the last decade plus, been fortunate to be a resident officer here at NELC headquarters. And over that time, have had the opportunity to travel all over the country. and And even though I'm a little biased, it's home. I do think that it's still the best food city that I've ever been to. And I would imagine there's a lot of branch and state leaders that uh, after. Last few days would agree. But Ed, I could not agree with you more. I'm always impressed by whether it's the delegates at a national convention or the folks from the branches that attend our regional trainings that I go around the country and get to spend some time with the members and address them and update them. I'm always impressed by the professionalism. And, you know, people are there. And, you know, while they're there, of course, they enjoy themselves, and it's always fun to be in a different city. But they take the work and the responsibility that they have attending those events very seriously, and that's evident. When we look out and see leadership that may have been in a leadership position for some time, and we see that same level, if not, frankly, even, you know, a continually increasing level of professionalism from the exciting number of young leaders that we see every year when we have these types of national events. So those folks at the branch level are really what makes our union strong, and they take their responsibilities when they attend events like this very seriously. Seriously, and professionalism is a really good word to describe one of the really glaring characteristics that we see from our people, you know, whenever they're in an environment to learn or give feedback or participate in whatever capacity with anything to do with our union. So I could not agree with that statement anymore.
0: Switching topics now, just talking about our Enough is Enough rallies. I know we have another one coming up at the end of the month. You want to talk about that for a second?
1: Yeah, as we talked about yesterday, and you and I have talked about a number of times on this podcast, we keep working on what, aside from collective bargaining, is right there uh, as our number one priority, and that's the safety of our members. And in particular, safety as it relates to trying to slow down, quell, reverse, and hopefully one day eliminate these violent attacks we've seen on our members. So we've done a number of these rallies around the country at this point, and the idea is to raise public awareness. And we've seen some positive impacts there too. We've seen, you know, not just the folks that we serve every day, you know, them being aware of this so they can maybe keep an eye out for us. But we've also seen it permeate into other areas that we need to make some improvements in in order to push back on this crime, such as prosecutions. We've seen an increase in the number of prosecutions. We've seen the United States Attorney's Offices in a number of locations begin to kind of move these type of issues up their priority list. So that's a a positive impact. But yeah, we're excited next week on November the 30th. We are going to have a rally in Phoenix, Arizona. So our brothers and sisters there, Branch 576, I'm sure a couple of the surrounding branches there. will also have some folks in attendance and we will continue our efforts to educate people and Raise awareness and send that really strong message of enough is enough. And, you know, look, we've had it with our members being targets out on the street, and we're going to continue doing everything we can to push back. And that'll be the next step in our efforts when it comes to kind of public awareness and, and public engagement. So for all our brothers and sisters there in Arizona, look forward to seeing you there next week. We've got a couple more planned here in the reasonably near future. And I'm sure as we talk next week, on our, I guess, podcast version of the raft session, I'm sure we'll get into a little more detail about some of the other things that we're working on as it relates to pushing back on this crime.
0: And this is our Thanksgiving weekend episode. So we were going to talk about Thanksgiving and community. We are going to have a special guest on, Pat Byrne. Do you want to talk about Pat for a second?
1: Yeah, th- this is something that I'm so excited about. I- I'm so excited for our listeners to be able to hear from Pat. So, Pat is a retired letter carrier. Pat's a long, long time NALC activist. He's from Massachusetts, the Boston area, from Branch 7 in Lynn, Massachusetts. And I've known Pat for a long time, going back years before I was here at NALC headquarters. Pat is he's a special individual, and I know in a recent episode we had Mike Shea on, and we were talking about the postal record. And one of the things that we talked about is the interesting stories, be it hobbies or remarkable things, you know, acts of heroism that our members do. And one thing that always holds true is that our members are special people, and and they often go to great lengths to help others. and We thought for Thanksgiving, a holiday that, you know, is really about giving thanks and appreciation, that it would be a good idea to have something maybe a little different than we normally do on the podcast and, you know, just highlight an example of our members doing really remarkable things, and Pat has, for a long time now, nearly twenty years, has done a lot of remarkable things in terms of helping people that uh, are facing all kinds of different challenges. And I don't want to, you know, spoil the interview. It's much better for you to hear it from Pat than from me. But he's he's a great person and someone that has really spent his adult life dedicated to serving NLC members, and he's also spent a significant portion of his adult life. In addition to serving NALC members, he spent his time serving his community and really helping those that need it most. So he's a special person. The story that you'll hear is, is in my opinion, very moving. It's pretty amazing what our members do uh, beyond just what we do, delivering the mail and, and serving our customers. And Pat's a great example A great example of that. And he's a really entertaining guy. And he also happens to have a great voice for podcasts. So um, (laughs) I think everybody will enjoy listening to it. So, Eddie, I guess before we move on to talk to Pat, speaking of Thanksgiving... I just want to express my appreciation to our members for everything you do every day to not just serve your customers and your communities, but what you do for our union. You know, our union is very blessed when we look around at other unions. I'm in my position as president. I have the opportunity through the AFL-CIO and even a few other activities that I do fairly regularly. I'm exposed to a lot of other unions and I have a lot of close friends and brothers and sisters that have various responsibilities with other unions. And one thing that is no secret up here in Washington, D.C., as it relates to unions and the labor movement, is that NALC has the most active membership of any union. We would argue that, and I believe we would be correct, regardless of what area of activism we're talking about. You know, historically for us, going back in the, I guess we're approaching 135-year history of our union, It really is that activism of our members and the the spirit of solidarity that empowers us to be successful. I've written in the postal record a few times about this concept of empowered solidarity and the level of activism among our members and the fact that they approach everything, you know, even from our jobs to those that are involved in work with the union representing letter carriers in whatever area they choose to do so. That level of activism creates the empowered solidarity that has made us successful for a long, long time and I believe will continue to make us successful long into the future. So as we're in this holiday season of Thanksgiving, I wanted to just express my sincerest thanks to the members of our union for what they do every single day to serve our customers, certainly, but also what they do to serve our union and continue to strengthen our union, which will be a benefit to our brothers and sisters in the present. And we also have a long tradition will continue to benefit our members far into the future. So thank you all and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hey, here's my interview with uh, NALC Branch 7 member, Pat Byrne. Hey, Pat, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Brian. I look forward to this.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. It's, uh, number one, really good to talk to you again. It's been a little while and uh, happy to have known you for a long time. And I know our listeners should be very interested in uh, hearing you tell your story. I, I have personally always found it very inspirational and I'm sure they will do the same but before we get into some of that why don't you first uh, talk to us a little bit maybe fill our listeners in on your background professionally I mean you have were a letter carrier for a long time and and did a lot of work you know for the NALC in different capacities and so from wherever you want to start leaning up to what you're currently doing just kind of fill us in on what you've done over the course of your career professionally
2: Well, uh, I think like uh, quite a few letter carriers across the nation, you know, I came out of the Army in 1974 and took a starter job at the Postal Service, married my starter girlfriend, bought a starter home, and 52 years later, we're in the same home with the same girlfriend, and I'm still involved with the NALC. So, as I say, I think a lot of us follow that same path. We thought things were one way and realized quickly that uh, we were in a pretty good situation. Um, The NALC allowed me an opportunity very quickly to understand the need for representation and service, both to my members and to my, I took on a, became a steward as a PTF and moved up through the different offices of the branch and became branch president. And that was a starter job too, that I kept for 22 years. I had a couple of terms as state president, which was uh, very educational. It was shortly after the NALC redefined the state chairs to be legislative and political. So the training and uh, contract type uh, training was off the board. And so I got to see exactly how politics and legislation affect our daily lives. And concurrently with that, I worked as an arbitration advocate for over 33 years, probably had been assigned thousands of cases. I'm not sure that we arbitrated nearly that many, but I certainly settled quite a few. In the last couple of years, I, I just recently retired as a arbitrator on the letter carrier uh, postal service panel. I had just found that uh, after two years of doing that, that um, I really had had my fill of um, dispute resolution in any form. Well, basically, I had my fill of dispute. Um, I retired from the postal In 2006, and after three days of wishing my wife a good day at work while I stayed in the home, I realized that wasn't tenable. So, I searched in my local community and I found a job as a uh, advocate for the homeless. I worked in that position for 15 years, uh, representing vulnerable folks in the community, which were drug addicts and mentally ill folks, sex workers, and there was an awful lot of overlap in those categories as well. In 2020, when the pandemic um, hit, I was tasked by our mayor to uh, lead the coalition task force on the vulnerable population, which also included the elderly at that time. And I had a two year stint of that as well. So I think that that's pretty much it, Chron- you know, chronological, what I've been up to. In that role, I think one of the biggest things that we learn is that. Uh, You know, cures are very difficult to find. Um, Identifying problems is pretty easy for everybody. We're all expert problem finders. Problem solving is a little bit more difficult. And I took it on a very basic approach. I remember people's names. And if I saw somebody in the morning, I might wish them a good morning, use their name and touch them on the shoulder. And it might be the only time in the course of the day that they were treated with any decency and that resonated with me. I saw it. I saw I saw the, uh, an immediate connection with folks, and I felt very rewarded by
1: it. Yeah, that, that's really one of the things I recall from, you know, past conversations that you and I have had, that despite um, you, uh, you know, dedicating really a, a large portion of your life to, you know, serving those that are in need, that, you know, frankly, we're often in, you know, very difficult situations, complicated situations health-wise, and I know you Have over that period of time, you know, educated yourself in a lot of ways on how to help those people with things like diabetes and and you know maybe even some other health conditions. Um, You've always pointed out that you know one of the biggest benefits that you can give another human being is often something the most simple thing you can think of, which is just simply being nice to people and uh, you know a, a a kind word that. You know, folks that are, uh, you know, really having a difficult time. Something very small like that can can mean a lot to them.
2: Well, I think we could agree that it's really not that small. One of the main planks of the NALC is that we demand our membership be treated with dignity and respect. So to apply that on a universal basis, I think you know makes perfect sense, and it has a great impact. You know, it really does. It's it's. Even in, I'm sure when we look at the variety of offices where letter carriers serve, where there is an office that treats people with dignity and respect and kindness, that that's a lot better feeling than the, the opposite.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's really, uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, you for a long time, as you mentioned, served in lots of different roles. You and I actually met years ago um, through arbitration. I think we were in Texas as I recall. And then uh, you know, you went on to to become an arbitrator. And we are, you know, very much appreciative as I, I know the the many, many members over the years that you had the opportunity to represent are also appreciative of everything, you know, that you did as far as representation and uh, you know, as you mentioned, dispute resolution is uh kind of at the core of what we do and um you know, that's something that you did well for a long time. And for the purposes of, of you know, this conversation, we really, um, I, I think you're the, the story of what you've done over the years, you know, even beyond that, as we often hear, we actually talked on a recent episode of this podcast uh, we were talking about the history of the postal record and some of the, uh, you know, stories that we've done that were you know, just remarkable things that, that that NALC members have done, even outside of our work as letter carriers, our work as, you know, union representatives. And I think yours is is very unique in that regard. You know, you mentioned that after you retired from the Postal Service that you began doing a lot of stuff, helping out people in the different communities that were having difficulty, the homeless, um, those, you know, suffering from addiction. Um, and then, you know, later on in your life that uh, you had a, a personal tragedy that, uh, you know, really hit home. So I I wanted to be sure and and give you the opportunity to talk about your son, Jamie, and what took place uh, there and uh, how um, that, I think, even probably further motivated you to continue the the work that you had been
2: doing for a number of years before. Well, certainly. My son, Jamie, I I have a son and a daughter. My son, Jamie, was our firstborn. Brilliant child. Beautiful man. Um, he had a master's degree in computer science from Boston University and was very successful um, financially in his field. And through uh, college, he had picked up a, a habit to he was using drugs intravenously. And through his adult life, he fought that battle. Um, he had periods of sobriety of over five years um, when he was forty years old. He had uh, was contacted by an old friend, a family friend. She was in dire straits and she had asked him. She was unable to even leave her house. She had so many folks after her her for non-payment of her drug use bills. And she had asked him to procure drugs for her. He did so Saturday afternoon. She was to pick them up on Saturday evening and... He could not resist the urge to try them, and he overdosed and perished. Coincidentally to that, that was uh, January of 2014, and in the northeast here, we were hit with fentanyl wave right towards the end of 2013. So it was one of the first casualties in our community of the fentanyl. As tragic as it is, and it, you know, you pointed out, it, it's, it's the ultimate loss, I mean, it's it's something that no parent wants to even consider a experience. However, there's a choice in life when you're when you're hit with something like that. And either you go on or you become a victim yourself. And, you know, I wasn't gonna let that happen. And you know, I owed it to my grandchildren and my my daughter and my wife and and to myself to continue to move forward and to help. And what it did for me was it gave me a different perspective. A different sensitivity. I started to become aware of not just the person suffering on the street, but the impact it had on their families and the fact that with very little input, I could make a difference. And I took that opportunity and I found that it gave me an immense sense of personal wealth, not in a monetary fashion, but of a worthiness fashion. I felt that I would walk into a room and could clearly be identified as the wealthiest person not defined by loss but by being defined by having an ability to help others and the reward of doing that was something I did not anticipate I was completely blindsided I found it to be so worthwhile and I benefited greatly from
1: it yeah it's it's Pat, it's such an inspirational. I mean, I, I've you know heard you and, and had this conversation with you in you know years past, and you know it still is, and I'm sure for our listeners, um, I think very inspirational because, as you said, when when faced with adversity and in this again terribly tragic situation, you really face the ultimate adversity. It's it's hard to imagine you know a, a circumstance more difficult than losing a child that, that we all are really faced with a choice and um you know the not an easy choice but uh, the choice you made there is is i think number one admirable and from a personal perspective you know as someone who has battled addiction to alcohol thankfully by you know the grace of god and and with the help of a lot of people, I mean, I'm doing great and and have, you know, an extended period of sobriety now, but the recognition of, you know, what you experienced firsthand, the impact that it has on the individual, of course, but also on those around them, um, their family, and, you know, that those people who are often um, those that are kind of the ones that People that that battle these type of illnesses turn to, you know, those people need support too, and you you know certainly can empathize at a level that that most of us cannot imagine. So I, I'm sure that definitely uh, the perspective that you gain there, but being able to assist those and you know really have the deepest understanding of of what they're dealing with, you know, which kind of leads to my next question is what um, Do you have advice for those, for maybe members or listeners of this podcast who have family members or, or others close to them that are dealing with, be it addiction to drugs or alcohol or, or mental illness or, you know, whatever the case may be, what type of advice would you offer um, to them in terms of um, what they could do or, you know, whether to help themselves or, or to help others?
2: Well, I sure wish there was a, a fortune cookie answer to that one. Me too. <laughs> My, <laughs> the greatest uh, greatest advice I could give is to understand that the other person, that the person who's suffering, um, is in fact suffering and not probably not receptive to a whole lot of advice. You can yell, you can cajole, you can try kidding. But you can't hit somebody in the head with a hammer and expect them to have your viewpoint. It's just not the way life works. Part of it and part that, you know, was critical to me and and I understood it after my loss was that, you know, stay alive. Like one piece of advice, stay alive. You don't know what tomorrow might be better. You know, you don't know what, what will give somebody a breakthrough, Brian, and what makes somebody finally see the light as somebody that you you know I, I was so proud when you made public your struggles because you know that you can look at that two ways right you can we can sense a, a, a weakness because oh my goodness you you were you were fighting a battle that you weren't winning or we can sense leadership true leadership where you exposed yourself you were raw and you know click where the chips may fall And I think that that's the approach that I take with people as far as advice goes to just say, look, be honest, be honest with your family members and just be there for somebody, check in on them. It's not a matter of approval or disapproval or changing their behaviors because that's impossible. You can't change people's behavior. You can certainly make recommendations and exert influence, but you're not going to change anything unless that person's ready. I think that's um, an advice I would give to friends and family members, co-workers. If you think somebody's in trouble, don't be afraid to approach them. And if they re- rebuff you, um, don't be afraid to just, you know what, you don't want to talk to me, that's fine, but I'm still here for you. You know, when you are ready, I'm here for you. Don't give up. I guess that's the, the key piece of advice is don't ever give up. As a parent who lived with his child's addiction for 20 years on and off but, you know that was it was a real problem I went through an awful lot of emotional turmoil you know anger sadness I felt victimized I, you know I felt sorry for myself I felt sorry for my son I was mad at my son I didn't like my son and the truth be told none of that was really true you know the love level never changed sometimes we're frustrated at our inability to effect change. So, what I would say is, don't let that bother you. If your message isn't heard by the person that you care about, just make sure you're there for them for when they do turn it around. And that that really is the only advice I could give at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Just simply being there, as you mentioned, is is very important. And then yeah, I think for addicts in recovery, acceptance is a you know, a huge sort of concept that you have to learn to accept, for lack of a better word. But I think also, you know, when you have someone close to you, as you mentioned, that's that's struggling, you also have to be willing to, you know, accept that you cannot make them do anything. You know, what you can do, however, is is, as you said, just be there. You know, you should certainly not be afraid to approach them and uh but i think the important thing is that you know you're there so at whatever point that individual and this is really different with everyone that individual gets to a place for for whatever reason and uh is you know receptive to uh or willing to to do what they need to do to get help it's important that you're there to, to help them and I, you know, again, I can speak from personal experience and, and thankfully, you know, both family, friends, and, you know, lots of other people that, uh, there's never a time when someone needs support more than, than when they're struggling with anything. But, uh, that, I think that's particularly true of, of addicts. So, um, really appreciate that. One of the things that, uh, we do every year here at NALC that is to me one of the most gratifying and, things that we, we do is on a yearly basis, we give away awards and recognize letter carriers that are heroes of the year. And we do a variety of awards. Some of them are geographic, you know, different parts of the country. We you utilize judges to, to choose heroes. And then we also give away other awards that are specific to certain areas. And, um, you know, while we're, we're limited in the number of awards that we could give away every year, it's The fact is that thousands of letter carriers every year do heroic things to, that go way beyond delivering the mail. And that continues, you know, not just while our folks are active working for the postal service, but one of the really unique and strong things about our union is the strength of the, our retired members and the work they continue to do. But back in 2016, you were the recipient of our hero of the year award for education due to the, a lot of the things you've talked about already, that at that point, I guess for about a decade, you had uh, been involved in assisting a lot of different people that were in need there in your community. So um, first, uh, congratulations again, even though it's uh, seven years later, I'll I'll never forget, uh, you know, you and I having the opportunity to go to Capitol Hill and sit down with your senators and that type of stuff. but um, I'm curious any reflections you have on that experience. And I think as we often see, I, I'm sure you had pretty vivid memories of the other heroes that were that were honored that year. but I just want to give you the opportunity to share any any memories or reflections or takeaways that you had from that experience.
2: That was one of the most intense experiences I've had in my life, um, not related directly to children family professionally for sure it was such a tremendous award and when when I first found out you know I, I was in a sense of disbelief because I didn't think that you know I mean I was I was getting paid I was doing a job I didn't think there was anything heroic about it however when I connected with the fellow recipients and their extended group the folks that traveled with them who knew them intimately as it were a realization came across me that in fact what we all had accomplished especially together those nights that we spent together talking it was at a level that i i never anticipated and i've never experienced before to see the good in people how clearly how good people are and how instinctive and when i listen to each of their stories We all had the same response. It was no big deal. You know, a lot of people have done a lot, lot better things than we have. But in truth, there was just such honesty and everybody shared the joy. Each and every recipient shared the joy that we got out of our efforts. Recognition was great, but the joy was from experiencing with each other where it had brought us. And it was a special place. It was uh, it was it was so great to meet the other people. I met branch leaders. I remember uh, Tommy Dugalinski, Dugalinski from Prince Syracuse was there. He had a branch member, Colleen, who uh, had had arranged a parade for a child that was disabled. But just to to watch him interact with her and to see the pride and the, the kindness that each of these folks exhibited towards us, it was just. One of the most special moments of my life, certainly the most special moment of, of any professional part of my life.
1: I mean, I, I have taken you know a ton of uh, just gotten a lot of joy and you know pride too from being involved in that every year. And but you know something you mentioned there in the beginning that I can honestly say in the the twelve years I've been here at uh, NALC headquarters and dealt with and experienced you know the heroes each year and the the several days of uh, leading up to the luncheon and, and everything that we do with them, there's always one thing in common, and that is that all of them say and genuinely believe that what I did was nothing out of the ordinary. And I think that is so reflective of the way that all of our members that letter cares around the country that do um, things, you know, every single day to to help people and Um, They feel the same way, you know, it's, it's not, I didn't do anything special, but um, uh, it is a, uh, just a tremendous, you know, honor for us to be able to highlight those heroes. And, and, you know, I'll, from a personal standpoint, uh, definitely never forget that year that, uh, that you were here. All right. That was back in 2016. And uh, since 2016, there's been a lot of, we had a pandemic and, you know, been a very unique uh, few years. But I know you've, you know, remained very involved with a lot of the things we've already talked about, but um, why don't you maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you've done and continued to do, you know, since 2016. And uh, I'm sure the pandemic caused uh, some, just like everything else in in life, um, caused some changes and uh, added some layers of difficulty to uh, what's already, you know, kind of a very rewarding, obviously. but you know, sometimes a difficult space to to work in. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you've been up to the last few years?
2: Well, if you take a look at the, we'll start with the pandemic. So, you know, it it affects people in so many different ways. Let me give you an example of how it affects uh, homeless folks staying in a homeless shelter. From the moment that it was declared an emergency pandemic or when it reached pandemic level, because of federal and state funding, Shelters were required to socially distance. So what we had was we had probably 50 adult males in a very small room, like maybe 20 by 20, on bunks with just the tiniest aisles between them. Well, all of a sudden, we had to socially distance, So which meant that two-thirds of that population were put out on the street, and that was in every shelter across America. So that exacerbated the homeless situation. You know, the major cities now, you know, we take a look at San Francisco and Los Angeles and Boston, um, Washington, D.C., uh, the the, uh, encampments, the tent encampments, folks that live unsheltered. They live, they call it rough sleeping. Those folks, you know, are generally dealing with some issue or another, even if it's just a lack of self-esteem. And that is exacerbated by the situation they find themselves in, and by the way people look at them. Um, I've tried to work a little bit in, in education through the community and trying to educate people that these folks are not less than us. They're just going through a tougher time. And again, uh, a pat on the shoulder, a good morning, a smile, that can be of huge value to somebody who's hurting inside, for somebody whose self-esteem. When they look in the mirror and they don't like the person that they see, they don't wake up in the morning and decide to be the biggest burden on society that ever was. They find themselves in those situations and they have a lot of. I'm, you know, I don't have the energy that I used to, where I would, you know, go and uh, going to camping areas, you know, and bring socks and water and so forth. It's more really difficult for me to, you know, handle that terrain now. But um, as far as you know, modifying my approach, it's, it's a little bit more giving guidance and leadership. You know, I sit on some committees still. Uh, We have a committee uh, that's in our city. Our city's 100,000 people. It's a manufacturing town that doesn't manufacture anymore. So we have a huge amount of um, social issues in the the city. It was always a town of migrant workers, and uh, it continues to be so. Unfortunately, there's no work for these folks now. I work on a committee uh, that involves criminal justice as well as uh, mental health groups. And we try to identify folks who are vulnerable in the community and, and, and make a group approach is to try to help them on an individual basis. There is no panacea. There's no magic wand. We going to cure them. Just roll up your sleeves and, you know, try to help one person at a time. And I'm trying to continue that, although I am getting more comfortable with retirement. <laughs>
1: well, it's well-deserved, trust me. <laughs> well,
2: thank you, sir. <laughs>
1: Pat, look, I I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to share um, what what I believe, and I know our our listeners will um, appreciate as as you know, very inspirational and and look practical in a lot of ways. Because from an advice standpoint, some of what you've shared, because so many, uh, you know, just the sheer numbers of you know those that that suffer from you know, many of the things that you described that you've been involved in uh, helping people with, you know, there's such a large percentage of people, including members of our union, that are impacted and um, if not impacted individually themselves, they certainly are impacted to some degree because, you know, they have family members or co-workers or, or others close to them. And I, I, just speaking from a personal standpoint, you've always been one of One of my favorite people, and I just want to express, you know, on behalf of our members, my appreciation certainly for everything that you did to represent Letter Cares and NALC members over the years, but, you know, what you also have done and and continue to do for your community there. And we've got uh, a program within the union that we are in the early stages of developing to utilize our members and to help other members in in some ways in similar ways to some of the stuff you've done in the past. So, you know, look forward to really talking with you about that uh, a little more in the future. And, you know, while I know you're enjoying your retirement, I don't have any doubt that uh, um, you'd be willing to offer your experience and, and expertise in any way we could to make that as successful as we can. So we'll have a little more about that in, in a future episode. Uh, Pat, once again, thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, it's great to talk to you.
2: Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for this opportunity. Um, I look forward to working with you in the future, any endeavor that you you, you choose. I want to wish all of the members and yourselves um, happy Thanksgiving, and a, a quick message to our membership. Don't lose sight of how much you have to be thankful for. Sometimes we dwell on the negative a little too much, and uh, despite all the craziness that's going on in this world. Take a look around you and be be thankful for what we have. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks, Pat.
0: All right, now let's get into our Ask the Mailbag segment. Our first question comes from Chris. He's been a letter carrier for over 19 years, and he's worked in several districts around the country. One thing that's always baffled him is why don't we have a regional cost of living adjustment Or locality pay? Some carriers work in districts where the economics don't work out, where in others, they're more flush with money. Why don't we have locality pay? Hmm.
1: Interesting question um, and a question that comes up fairly often. Part of that, I think, is because in certain areas of the federal government, you you do have some form of locality pay or area wage or or whatever terminology you want to use. So let me just give you a little history NALC's bargaining positions, as we've talked about on this show before, are in large part dictated by processes that play out with resolutions at our convention, resolutions that are submitted by branches and state associations, the delegates of the convention that are all elected by their branches and state associations or their delegates by virtue of the NALC constitution. They consider, debate, and vote on resolutions. Many of those we Categorized as national agreement resolutions, and they set official bargaining positions at the NALC. So, this particular topic of locality pay or area wage, or again, whatever terminology you want to use, has been the subject of, I wouldn't even venture to guess without doing a lot of research. Exactly how many resolutions over the years, but I would say it's in the double digits, and we have a convention every two years. So this going back as far as I can remember attending national conventions in in different capacities, it has been a topic of conversation, and either at minimum a topic of conversation, and in most conventions there's been an actual resolution. Now, when a resolution is submitted, the executive council will. Take a look at that resolution. The executive council will make a recommendation to the delegates and provide the basis for that recommendation. In the last several conventions, the recommendation that the executive council has made on this particular topic, resolutions that were calling for us to negotiate locality pay or area wage, has been a recommendation of disapproval, but the basis of that recommendation of disapproval is that delegates for literally decades at the convention have considered these type of resolutions and have disapproved them, which is the, the delegation at the national convention that's elected by the members of the NALC have consistently voted these down, therefore dictating that we should continue to negotiate the same wage for letter carriers, no matter where they live, unless they receive the territorial cost of living adjustment. So our recommendation has been based on that, that until such time as there is a change in what the delegates of the convention that once again are democratically little d elected per our constitution by the members all around the country to represent the membership at these conventions, until such time as those delegates vote to change direction on our negotiation, we will continue to negotiate as we have previously. That said, I would be very surprised if at our 2024 convention, which is in Boston next August, I'd be very surprised if there was not a resolution submitted on this issue in some form or fashion. There's been different variations over the years. I can promise you that the delegates to that convention will give that resolution full consideration. There will be plenty of discussion, and ultimately they will vote. And, you know, the vote of the delegates and what they decide to do with uh, this, I call it hypothetical, but I'm almost sure there will be a resolution there. Whatever the delegation at that convention chooses to do with that resolution is the direction that we will go bargain. So if at any point in time the delegation at a convention passes a a resolution and adopts a national agreement resolution to set an official bargaining position of NALC to go negotiate a locality pay, then we will absolutely seek to negotiate that. It's just that over the years, and, and at this point it's 30, 40 years, there have been, I, I again, I wouldn't even venture to guess how many resolutions, you know, calling for us to negotiate this, and every one of them has been voted down. And that, in, in my mind, and I think the minds of most members and most members of the Executive Council, for sure, is a pretty strong message and mandate to continue to negotiate the same wage for all letter cares all over the country. Again, until that changes, then uh, we will continue to do that. But there is a democratic process in place. That's why every member has the opportunity to participate in the resolution-making process at the branch level. If your branch adopts that resolution, it can be submitted and it will be considered by the delegates of the convention.
0: Our next question comes from Reed in Thibodeau, Louisiana. He wants to know why we don't have penalty time in December. Yeah, that's an
1: interesting question. And and I think we have to kind of look at it and understand the history of how and roughly when penalty time came about. So there was a time long time ago, back, I don't know, 40 plus years ago, 40 years ago where we did not have penalty overtime or V time. So we did not have a pay rate when you exceed 10 hours a day or 56 hours a week that you were paid penalty overtime. That changed in the early 80s. And when that changed, we gained, achieved that additional rate of penalty overtime 11 months out of the year. That excluded December. So I think we have to look at it. It's not a thing where December was somehow chopped off or excluded. We did not have it at all (laughs) at one point in time. Thankfully, we achieved it for 11 months out of the year. I can tell you it has been discussed in a number of rounds of collective bargaining. We obviously have not reached agreement on including December in a time frame where we would be paid penalty overtime. I would suspect that that would continue to be a topic of negotiation. But kind of the nature of negotiations is, you know, when you seek to gain something like that, if you're sitting on the other side of the table, you know, and you're the Postal Service. You know, in their mind, they think, well, what could we gain by this? What should we want in return for this? And we just haven't, over the years, gotten to a place on this particular issue. Where we were able to reach an agreement that we thought was fair and worth what it would take for us to gain uh, that penalty overtime. So the history of it is in the early 80s, we achieved penalty overtime, but what we achieved was penalty overtime. We went from never having it to having it 11 months out of the year and excluded December, obviously, because December is also a period of time where. You know, the maximum work hour limitations for um, overtime desired list carriers, there's an exception during the month of December because of what we see volume-wise with the postal service during peak season.
0: Our next question comes from Demetrius Curry. He's in Branch 580 in Indiana. He has multiple e-reassign requests in Light Blue at this time. He's been a full-time regular employee for three years. If he transferred into an office, would he be a PTF or would he be the lowest assigned regular? He just was looking for some clarity.
1: Yeah, so the answer is it depends. So if you transfer to an office or an installation where there are part-time flexible city carriers, where there are PTFs on the rolls in that installation, you enter that installation through a transfer, a voluntary reassignment. You would go there as a PTF. You would start a new period of seniority which means you would start at the bottom of that, that PTF seniority list. If you are currently full-time or PTF and you transfer to a location, an installation where they do not have any PTFs on the rolls and there's a full-time opportunity there, you will go into that opportunity in a voluntary reassignment, a transfer as a full-time regular. Let me just give a little bit of context and, and history here. So, for many years, everyone that transferred, regardless of anything, it doesn't matter what your status was, if you were full time or whatever, when you transferred to another installation, you became a PTF and you started a new period of seniority. That changed a little bit in 2013. So, in 2013, when the CCA category through the DOS award was introduced, part-time flexibles were phased out of our craft. We then negotiated an agreement, I think it was in November of 2013, that over the years we negotiated a number of subsequent agreements. That agreement in its current form is actually in our contract, in the national agreement. It's an MOU on full-time regular opportunities, city letter carrier craft. Under the provisions of that MOU, because PTS were being phased out, everyone that transferred went in as full-time. In later rounds of bargaining, we, in some ways, reintroduced the part-time flexible PTF category into our craft, and that was we took CCAs that were non-career, and a portion of them became PTFs, and that's continued over the last couple of rounds of bargaining. So in the negotiations for the 2019 agreement, there, for a number of different reasons, we bargained several things that resulted in increasing the number of PTFs. So for example, once CCAs, you know, reach X number of months of relative standing as a CCA, 24 months, they are converted to PTF automatically. So the fact that we had more and more PTFs in our craft, we had to clarify what happens when someone transfers. So if someone is a full-time regular and they transfer somewhere else, pursuant to Article 12 and 41, You have to begin a new period of seniority when you go, if you voluntarily reassign to a new installation. So when you voluntarily reassign, historically, you go there, you go to the bottom of seniority list, you would become a PTF. Then we had this change in 2013. So what we agreed to do in an MOU that I actually negotiated, it was in March of 2021, the M number in the MRS, if you want to look it up on the website, is m 1947. We clarified what would happen in terms of status and that type thing when individuals transferred now that we had this reintroduction of part-time flexibles, at least in larger numbers, into our craft. And in a nutshell, what that MOU says is if you transfer under that full-time regular opportunities MOU, if there are no PTFs on the rolls, you go in as full-time. If there are PTFs on the rolls in the installation the gaining installation, the installation to which you are transferring, then you go on the rolls as a PTF and you begin a new period of seniority. So I hope that gives you a little bit of context as to the reason it's the way it is. But in a nutshell, the answer to your question is pretty simple. It just depends on whether there are PTFs on the rolls there or not.
0: And that was our Ask the Mailbag segment. If you have a question you want to get asked, you can email us at social at NALC.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. And please share this with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media, on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19 you have any questions to submit or have feedback about this podcast, again, you can please email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side. May your union have your back. Thanks for listening. Thank your steward. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week.